The RTS London Podcast. This is BBC Television. Welcome to BBC Television Centre and the 60th anniversary of its formal opening on the 29th of June 1960. This programme celebrates the anniversary with a look at the origins and design of the building and what it meant to BBC staff and viewers in the 1960s and beyond. Hello, my name's Robert Sita and I'm head of BBC History. And my role is to tell the story of the corporation, which I take to mean why the BBC matters and how it's touched people's lives and made a difference. And there is no more distinctive a way than telling our story than through our buildings. And, and no more distinctive a building and adored a building than Television Centre. My name is Roger Butts. Um, I started working at TV Centre in 1965 as a, a trainee cameraman and stayed a studio-based cameraman until 2001 when I left the staff but I then carried on for another 10 years as a freelance cameraman frequently working at television centre and the building has just always fascinated me it's a delightful piece of architecture it was wonderfully efficient in its function and I just love it walking into television centre you knew you were walking into a an iconic building and be a building that was literally buzzing with television. This archive footage is from the first programme to be broadcast from the new television centre. Robert Seater, head of BBC History. So the, the real trigger for the creation of Television Centre, this new centre, was the end of the lease of Alexander Palace. Alexander Palace, of course, was where television began in 1936. And it was never purpose-built for television. It was adapted. It was a sort of Victorian pile on top of a hill in North London. So by the time we get to the 50s, it's clear that the BBC needs to have a proper purpose-built area that they can dedicate to this new medium of television. So they uh, scan the, the areas available to them and they alight upon White City. White City's got a rather interesting history because it was created uh, and given its name, in fact, by the 1908 Franco-British Exhibition, which built a panoply of pavilions and exhibition tents to, uh, to showcase British and French culture, enterprise and creativity. And these white stucco buildings were left after the exhibition and they gave the name to the place White City. It was also incidentally the home of the 1908 Olympics and the 1948 Olympics. But by the time you get to the late 40s, the 50s, the area is really um, abandoned and so the BBC alights upon it for the place to build the new television centre. And they set about finding an architect. And they give the commission to an architect called Graham Dorburn, who is apparently, he was given a doorstep of a brief in classic BBC commissioning style. And he goes off to the pub and sits there and scratches his head and wonders how on earth he's going to build this new building for this new medium television. And he doodles on the back of an envelope a question mark. And then realises in a eureka moment, 
but he has found the perfect shape for television centre. So it'll have a, a circuit in the middle for offices and managerial people, and round the back, it will have a panoply of different access points for all the paraphernalia of television. The cameramen, the engineers, the scenery builders, the painters, the costumes, the talent. They can all access the building clearly and easily through the back. So that becomes the blueprint, the model for television centres all around the globe. So, construction begins in 1951 to Graham Dorbin's blueprint design, and uh, 1956 the foundation stone is laid, which is still there, and up the building rises the iconic shape of television centre. And it is self-consciously an industrial building. That's the ethos, the practicality, the function. It's all about creating a building that will work for television. Far, far away from the um, the Victorian dreams of Alexander Palace, this is a building that will function. And in the words of the then director of television, it will create a factory capable of producing 1,500 black and white programmes in a year. Roger Bunce, BBC Studio Cameraman. Suddenly you have a building that was incredibly efficient at making TV programmes. Um, a lot of the magic lay in the, the ring roads around the back, which you know, the, the average punter won't have seen. There were two consecutive ring roads, uh, an inside one and an outside overtaking lane, as it were. And these were used to bring scenery and technical equipment into the backs of the studios. The inner one served as a scene dock as well, uh, while scenery was, was awaiting to come in. And at the front of the building, you had where the, the actors, the artists, the performers came from. The dressing rooms were all colour-coded. They related to three assembly areas, which were named after the primary colours of colour television. Um, and each one of those fed into three possible studios. And so the actors came from their dressing rooms into the assembly areas. Then when they entered the studios, the first places they got to were makeup and wardrobe where they were prepared. So by the time they arrived on the studio floor, they were ready to go. And the whole thing just functioned, the dynamics of the whole building just flowed so efficiently. Philip Schofield, TV presenter. My first memory of Television Centre was actually when I was very young. I was given the Ladybird book of television and inside it showed how all the studios worked, um, what cameras there would be in there, how you made a drama, those sort of things. And if you open the book on the inside cover with a map of Television Centre and I studied that map. I knew that map better than I knew the inside of my house. Television Centre is famous for its circular core, known as the doughnut, but it's also celebrated for its aesthetic additions. One of the things that often fascinates people about the building is, is the artworks, and there are a couple I'm going to talk about, but it's much like Broadcasting House. Uh, the commissioners of Broadcasting House in 1932 wanted to capture the magic of radio, and so they commissioned Eric Gill to make his famous sculptures on the front facade of the building. So similarly with Television Centre, how do we personify this magic of television? So they uh, commissioned a sculptor called T.B. Huxley-Jones to create the famous Helios statue, which sits on a pillar right in the middle of Television Centre, in the middle of the doughnut. And it's an image of the sun god from Greek mythology who was thought to capture this, this vital force of television. And there he is, he's holding the sun in his two hands, uh, circular in form, much like the form of the building, and twisted to, uh, to welcome the visitor in. And his base, there are two further sculptors, recumbent, that represent sound and vision. 
So the sculpture says this will combine everything. All the senses will be there for your, for your delight. Unfortunately, there was one distraction about the sculpture, which was the fountains. So because of the acoustic of the building, whenever the fountains played, all the staff, all the BBC staff ran to the toilets. So they had to be switched off. So that's one commission, the first one that strikes you as you enter the building. The second one is when you went into the main foyer, what was then the main foyer of Television Centre, you would see in front of you on the wall a fantastic, brightly coloured mural by John Piper, the English romantic artist who became an abstract artist uh, during the war years. And he captures in this brilliant mosaic made of Venetian glass the vision of a cityscape which is in an abstract form, which I think is saying that television is part of this bustling modernity. Television is part of how we live now. I love the mosaics. The, the John Piper mosaic in the main reception area is, is gorgeous. I've no idea what it's meant to be. It's a, an abstract, but it seems to radiate colour television. And it, it can't have done because TV was black and white when that was put there, but it the very fact that it's a mosaic, so it's effectively made of pixels rather like a colour television picture, it, it, it just says television. It's magic. And the, the fountains, and the, uh, sadly the fountains are one bit that never really work because they leaked and could only be turned on occasionally. But when they were turned on, they, they were magic. They, the fountains played inwards and then you had a, a hollow cylindrical waterfall that fell down between the statues of sound and vision. Well, the, the, the sort of basin they were in looked like the flying saucer from Forbidden Planet, if you've ever seen that film. It, it reflects the sort of pictures you see in the science fiction comics and science fiction films of the time, because it was a vision of the future. It was a, a vision of modernity. And I, I've said before, if, if Dan Dare or Jet Morgan had a headquarters, I'm almost certain it would look exactly like Television Centre. So, finally, we arrive at the grand opening night, 29th of June, 1960. And anybody who is anybody in television is there. Hosted in by the then Director General, Hugh Carton Green, brother of the, the writer, Graham Green. And actually, if you look at the programming, the live programming that was performed on that opening night, you can, you can see it's a, it's a democratic attempt to uh, have something for everybody available. Uh, and also to point backwards to the origins of television and forwards to what television might be. So you have the World War II entertainer, Arthur Askey. You have Mr. Pastry, delighting children with his mimetic capers. You have song and dance, the George Mitchell singers, the television toppers. And let's throw in a bit of ballet and classical music and even a, a tightrope walker as well. So it, it is television for everybody. Everybody will find something to delight them. It's very, very democratic. Um, and actually, also, I, I looked at the written archives when I was repairing this, and there's a lot of very detailed memoranda about the costs, it being the BBC. So the dinner particularly is very carefully budgeted. Um, a nice dinner with a nice glass of wine, but not champagne. Licensed fee players will be glad to hear. And the price, price per head must, not, must be capped at £2.10. So a bargain, I'm sure. So that's the opening night. And then a year later, in 1961... The Queen visits and gives the building her royal seal of approval. And she's the young, glamorous Queen. So it's a big moment of post-war glamour after the austerity of the 1940s and the war years. And interestingly, the Queen visits not, not just the studios, not just in front of the camera. She goes to the scenery dock. She goes to costume and makeup. She, she does a thorough 100% visit of the new television centre.
a 17-year-old new recruit to BBC Radio took the opportunity to visit Television Centre and look around. And I walked in through the doors and up to main reception and I spent the rest of the day exploring the whole building and I looked absolutely everywhere I was allowed to and I could get into into the studios that weren't actually operational at at the time. I didn't have their red transmission lights flashing. And I had a look at absolutely everything and I thought, this place is incredible. This building is unbelievable. At TV Centre, I primarily remember doing situation comedies. Um, Things like Not in Front of the Children and Marriage Lines. Television Centre wasn't just a building. It was also a community of people and you had a huge assemblage of talent from all the different crafts, from design, from lighting, from production, and a whole range of different production styles, you know, comedy, drama, um, science fiction, light entertainment, sort of singing and dancing shows. And the thing, I doubt that there's really been such an assemblage of talent anywhere outside Hollywood, really. Um, And they all met and they all talked to each other in places like the club particularly, but also in the canteens and in the tea bars. And if you had an idea for a programme, for example, and you thought a set like this would look good, I wonder if you'd actually build it and if it would stand up. Oh, there's designers over there. I'll go and talk to a designer. And you could pick each other's brains. You could throw ideas at each other and get ideas coming back. And so I think particularly the club, because there's a bit of alcohol sloshing around as well there, um, you know, people would talk uninhibited and, and they'd come up with it. Yes, as I said, the, um, the studios were the programme-making factory, but the, the club was in many ways the ideas factory. The idea that I might get a job in Television Centre was so huge and so extraordinary. I went for an audition for Children's BBC in TV Centre, um, met a guy called Pat Hubbard, who then took me round to the press suite, and um, I walked past both of the continuity booths and then to the press studios at the end and uh, did my audition. And little did I know, I could have absolutely no idea that um, I was going to get the job. Um, and I did, and I did, and I found myself working in the building that I'd studied. This perfect TV building, um, and uh, and what's more, uh, we were not much after that when I did Saturday morning telly. We were using all sorts of bits of it outside, um, behind the scenes, that sort of thing. It was absolutely perfect for me. It was uh, it was one of those things. I always think studios have got a smell. And the smell in any of the TV studios in Television Centre is always, it's always, I mean, it's a mixture of adrenaline and fear, I think, but also a bit electrical, a bit paint, a bit of wood. Um, and I just even love the smell of the studios. Everything worked so fast. Um, when it was at peak efficiency, you could have a programme in a studio for a whole day, 12-hour day, say. But overnight... All that scenery would be struck out. A whole load of new scenery would be struck in. It would be relit. It would be repainted. Um, And then first thing the following morning, you were ready to go in and make a completely new programme. It was like a Formula One pit stop is the only thing I can compare it to, the speed at which it worked. And there's, there's a buzz and an energy that comes from working at that speed. You feel inspired. You 
you feel excited. And, and, and again, the frontal architecture was also inspirational. It made you made you feel you know you were part of something really modern and futuristic and exciting. British television really is personified by Television Centre. Right from the uh, the swinging 60s with the social satire boom and pop music, through the shiny floor shows, entertainment shows of the 70s, um, the advent of news bringing a sense of gravitas um, into the building, um, to children's entertainment. Everything happens at, tele at uh, Television Centre. And when, when you talk to people who work there, uh, what they all say is that the delight of the place was that you would walk around and the, around the roundel and you would see in studio after studio a different genre of activity. Everything that happened in television all came together in that powerful place. Um, and not, not, just, not just within the industry itself, the building actually had a manifest expression on television. People saw it actually in their living rooms. They felt it was part of their lives. So uh, particularly for children, actually, uh, Blue Peter, the Blue Peter Garden was famously there. And this was for, if you didn't have a garden yourself, well, you had a garden in Television Centre. Also, people would recall the big celebratory entertainment moments. So the famous moment when Roy Castle tap danced his way all around the donut um, and breaking records for all-star record breakers in 1977. Or on, on a darker note, when it was struck by a bomb by the RA in 2001. Summing up the building is actually really easy because it is perfectly, purposely built. Sarah Green and I used to joke and say that it was the fun factory. You could walk in in August and there'd be fake snow blown around the floor because someone was recording their Christmas special and you never knew who you were going to bump into. You would go around the ring road and the TARDIS would be bringing, brought out or, you know, the, the set for generation game or the past the stars the place was full of stars eight studios all working each one of those studios the perfect size for the show that was going in it um all set about that circle um or semi-circle for the studios um and i uh i just always thought there is no other building no other tv uh, building that I've been into that is as perfectly built as that one. I see Television Centre as a a sort of living, dynamic work of art. The, the architecture is wonderful, but also the the function was wonderful. The, the throughput, the way people move through it, the way it inspired the people who worked there, the way it enabled people who worked there to be inspired, the, the speed it got us working at. And it it just is a lovely piece of architecture and, and the public got to know it because it appeared in so many programs. And so, yes, I think we, we, we should celebrate Television Centre. We should remember the role it played in, in getting television really started in all those early programs. We knew that this morning was coming out of the London studios. Uh, we knew that they were going to be shut down. We thought originally they were going to be renovated. Um, and then it became quite clear that we weren't going to go back. And there was quite a few discussions as to where we would end up going. They were doing up the Riverside studios. There were sort of two or three other places. And then one day, um, the head of daytime said, yeah, we've got our home. And I said, oh, OK, where are we going? She said, television centre. <laughs> you are joking me really i'd been to the final bbc show i was a guest on it with ronnie barker and brucey and noel edmonds and we were all on this show which is goodbye television center and so i'd made sure that i said to the producer on that last ever show um 
is it okay if I, they don't like you disappearing as a presenter if they don't know where you are? So I said, is it okay if I, you know, for an hour, um, I just have a wander around? He said, yeah, yeah, sure, sure, that's fine. So for an hour, I revisited all the steps I'd visited when I was 17. I went through all the studios, which are all empty, um, and had a good look round. There's a sort of goodbye to the place. I thought, that's it. What are they going to do? They're going to pull it down. I knew they were going to make it residential. What What's going to happen to it? And then when I was told that this morning was going to be housed in TC3, <laughs> I could not believe my ears. Um, and so the thought is like it's such a perfect full circle. The thought of working there again, going back, was sublime. And if we look right back to the press of the day in 1960, the Manchester Evening Chronicle said, what Hollywood is to the film industry, the new television centre in London will become to television. And I think they were right. Oh, that's nice and cool after the heat of the oh, studio, eh? Wonderful, isn't it? It was hot. It, weren't, we, weren't we lucky to get out of the finale, I think? I'll say we were. Yes. How do you think the show went, David? Oh, I think it went very well, didn't it? I so. yeah. Who do you think stood out of mind in the whole show? Oh, there's no doubt about it. Oh, well, you no, think the same I as I do? I'm sure I do. Of course. <laughs> Mr. Paisley! Oh, God! God, oh, If you'd like to learn more about the history of Television Centre, please follow the link to the RTS website for a list of resources. And so ends our first programme from the new Television Centre. The RTS London Podcast.